Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are lucky to be joined by Ravi Vishnawathan, founder and managing partner of Newview Capital, a growth stage and secondaries fund with over $2 billion in assets under management. Before launching Newview in 2018, Ravi spent 15 years at NEA, and then before that, worked in both banking and consulting. Ravi brought a wealth of experience around the growth and secondary markets to our conversation, and it was really fun to discuss both of those areas in detail, especially given the market reversal that we've seen over the last eight months. I really hope you enjoy our episode with Ravi. Hey, Ravi, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Samir. Thank you for having me. I was looking at my notes, and I realized that we've been trying to get this podcast on the calendar for about six months. And in some ways, I'm glad that we're doing it today versus at the beginning of the year, given your focus on growth and secondaries, which, of course, today is so much more topical given the the state of the overall markets. And speaking of the markets, you've been through three downturns, and maybe we can call it four, if you call that two-month span in 2020 a downturn. But how would you juxtapose what you're seeing right now relative to the last two big downturns in both 99, 2000, 2001, and then again in 2008 and 2009? I think that the, the comparison points obviously is 2000, 2001, and then 08, 09. Those are uh, the two main ones. You know, there was another downturn for a brief period. I would say Q1, Q2, 2020, maybe it was a half a downturn. So maybe three and a half downturns, not four. But I would say that um, some of the biggest differences for me is certainly 2000, 2001, I, I would say just the quality of companies then and now is just vastly different. And we've all heard stories of, um, Urban Fetch, Cosmo, Pets.com, you know, just just no business model, no unit economics. Um, whereas here, we, we can talk about valuation, we can talk about the supply-demand uh, balance or imbalance, but there are some fundamental companies getting created, whether it's internet, fintech, enterprise software. So that, that's a big difference. I think 08, 09 to now, for me, you know, th- that's probably a closer comparison. I would say that here, there's still... A massive amount of liquidity in the system. You know, 0809, the, the, there was actually a liquidity crunch globally, but certainly in venture, you have a massive amount. And you know, I don't know what the number is. Well over 100 billion of dry powder across the board. It could be hundreds of billions that a lot of these firms have raised. So that that's a big difference. And I think that will probably affect the shape of whatever type of recovery we'll have. And, but I also think, oh, I do not. But if you really look in, in historically in venture in the last 20 years, some, at least my time at NEA, where I was 15 years, some fundamental companies were created in that period of time, like Workday, oh, I do not, right? Uh, Data Domain, some of the other companies in the, in the early aughts. Um, so uh, so I, I think it's still a fantastic time to be investing. So given those comments and looking at some of those past periods and what we're seeing right now in terms of the extraction of liquidity out of the system, how does that affect areas like growth from your perspective? Yeah, I think that what's happening here, there's a couple of things. You had vastly overinflated valuations in the public markets. It used to be that the private markets would follow the public markets, at least, at least the areas that we, we invest in tech and a price software fintech. You had almost an inverse uh, relationship happening last couple of years where the public markets were following the, the private markets and you had tech stocks, 30, 50, 100x uh, ARR revenue. Um, So you have that valuation issue, but you also have so many macro things happening, the the situation in Ukraine, recession fears, inflation fears, interest rates, all of those things. So those two things kind of 
mashing up together is creating what's what's a pretty abrupt stop to this bull market. It's not it's not a gentle unwinding. I don't think anyone would say that. Having said that, you asked your question, what does it mean? I think in the growth sphere, the speed, I've been very surprised just in the last couple of months, the speed with which this is taking shape. Usually you have this paralysis, right? The, the system freezes up. And a lot of it, I think, is just a lot of venture firms are taking stock of their portfolio. They invested at an unprecedented pace in the last two, three years. So you have venture firms with hundreds and hundreds of portfolio companies trying to make sense of it. A, which ones are going to survive? You're, you're in that type. And then, you're, but you're also seeing like something that really didn't happen. I didn't see a whole lot of an 0809, this whole down round phenomenon, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And I'm 0 for 2 on my predictions. In 0809, I thought there'll be this wave of down rounds. It really didn't happen. There was a lot of inside rounds, bridge rounds, just m- more time for the for A, the market to come back, and B, the companies to start growing again. Here, you have some situations where a confluence of events, you, know, you could have two companies, identical companies, one raised in December of 21, and the other didn't raise yet. Vastly different fortunes, right? So if you raised and have a lot of capital and your last round wasn't crazy, you're actually in pretty good shape. You know, people have said, of course, flat is the new is the new up. The flip side, if you've raised at a big the ones that are most uh, caught short, you raised at a big price and you need to raise in the next 12 months in that subset, which could be a growing subset. What I've seen is people not even trying to do these extensions like, okay, you know, whatever it takes, let's just get the company finance or some high profile situations that are coming to light. So we'll see how that, what becomes of it. You're also seeing folks look at non-traditional sources of capital, maybe go international, maybe go sovereign, other areas where it's not venture. Now, obviously the, the, a big chunk of this influx has been non-venture, right? As you know, uh, in terms of the crossover and hedge funds. But I think there's people are trying to look at, all right, what are other sources that may be interested in this environment? Staying on the market still, if we think then back in 2021, as you mentioned, many companies raising large rounds with healthy balance sheets and plenty of runway, but also done at these valuations in hindsight that don't have any type of historic rationality to them, 50x, 100x type of multiples that were pretty commonplace. And it does appear that we, as a market participants, continue to make the same mistakes, the same mistakes as 99-2000, and really in any bull run. Why do you think that occurs so dramatically in, in the world of VC? It's a great question. We spend a lot of time thinking about it internally. I think that if you look at chart the last 20 years, you know, after Facebook was Closer to 20 years ago, came on the scene. You know, there was the let's not miss another Facebook. So there was a flood, you know, a flood to consumer. 10 years ago, let's not miss another Uber, right? The whole gig economy. A couple of years ago, look at Snowflake, right? Let's not miss another Snowflake. And that actually proved to the market, I think, where it was so stark is, and I don't know the exact numbers, but you know, the, the pre IPO investors made a early stage venture like return which is which is doesn't happen that often when you have a situation like that compounded with a fundamental kind of market iconic market shaping an iconic company like snowflake then that same phenomena comes in that we just talked about over the last 20 years and the, the another data point to rationalize that behavior is you know in covid something very surprising happened you, you saw okay the world could shut down but enterprise software fintech internet really exploded and i think 
non-digitized and slow to digitized economies and sectors realized this is a moment in time we have to do that because actually doing this makes us better, faster, cheaper, right? And so I think it emboldened all of us, frankly, to say, wow, even with a global pandemic, you're seeing technology and innovation, the durability of those sectors. That coupled with the snowflake snowflake effect, if you will, that just let us say it's unbounded. And then you also have a data point where for 13 years, people, naysayers have called the the end of the bull market and every single one of those times we've been wrong right and so i think it's just confluence of all of these factors coupled with these macro where it was a loud boom and now we're all trying to you know make sense of it and how to actually uh, become stronger coming out of it speaking about figuring things out you started new view roughly four years ago i think it was october 31st 2018 when fund one was launched and it was done in a, a very unique way in that you essentially did a modified GP-led secondary, taking stakes from an existing NEA portfolio and rolling it into New View Fund 1. And I know you had spent 15 years at NEA as a partner and then before that spent time at Goldman. What was that unique insight that you saw in 2018 that led to this structure? It really started um, probably 2017, a year or so earlier, really as a portfolio management exercise. You know, we, uh, when I was in the general partners got together and said, you know, we have a lot of companies, we've got a lot of great investments. Let's look inward and really look at the portfolio. Where are we spending our time, our resources, capital, et cetera? And that really led to, okay, There's we found a bunch of companies that were growing nicely. They're really high quality companies, but for a variety of reasons, we just weren't managing them as well as maybe we could have been or should have been. And it was nothing against us. I think the time was being spent on the Cloudflares and the Workdays and some of these the real fund making uh, type companies. But these are really high quality companies, you know, 23andMe uh, and a bunch of others. And it was older funds. The lead partner may have left or funds where the follow-on capital was constrained. You know, follow-on capital in any fund is, is you know, it's it sums to a certain amount. You can't make more of it. And some of these funds, we actually allocated it to market-defining companies like Cloudflare, MuleSoft, et cetera. So that constrained it. So we said, you know, what is a prudent, responsible way to think about these, these um, companies uh, in this portfolio? And this, we thought, why don't we do something that Maybe it's been done. We found it hadn't really been done, which is really a strategic spinoff. And originally we're thinking, you know, maybe it's just within NEA, but for regulatory reasons, it just, it, it, that wasn't possible. So that was really what led to this, I think you framed it correctly, a modified GP-led secondary. It's kind of a portfolio management exercise coupled with, a, or a spinoff coupled with a, a GP-led secondary. And for me, because I was driving a lot of that internal um, thinking, I just saw this as such a huge opportunity. And part of it was just coming full circle because when I was at my prior firm, which was Girl Goldman in the early aughts, I did get involved in secondaries to a limited degree in the tech market. And there was one big similarity and one big difference. The difference was that market was maybe a couple billion in 2000, 2001, 2002. It was well over 100 billion now. Market, that's the big difference. The similarity, tech or uh, tech venture and secondaries put together was almost a bad word. It was usually closeout funds and the quality of assets. It was more of a discount game. I'm going to give pay maybe 75 cents on the dollar and try to get the dollar back and be you know lower multiple, shorter duration. But these are quality assets. Why don't we spin them off, but have a framework that we just, it's not just a trade. 
uh, and it's not just a transaction, but it's really spinning off into a new entity that you can use that as a catalyst to create a different type of growth in secondaries firm. One that was a lot more in tune to the entrepreneurs, a lot more operational, a lot more flexible. And that was really the the whole um, thinking. And, you know, it literally was a birthing process. It took basically nine months. Uh, and that's where we closed pretty much at the end of, we started in the beginning of 2018, uh, closed kind of Q4, uh, 18. From my perspective, from the lens of actually the the reason to do this, it makes a ton of sense for the founders, the LPs that want to generate some liquidity in some of these old funds. But there's a lot of things that you have to navigate. And I think about the different constituents that you have to get to understand that it's a real win, or at least feel like it's a real win. It's the founders, right? Because you're effectively transitioning their position from NEA to a brand new firm. And then secondly, it's two sets of LPs, the LPs that are selling out or at least getting liquidity from the NEA level, as well as the LPs that you're bringing in. You mentioned this birthing process, which took nine months, and I can imagine how, how many complex conversations you had with all of these different groups. How, do you, how did, did you get people comfortable with, hey, this is a win-win for not only you, founder, but also for the LPs on, on both sides? I think that that's a great way to frame it. Um, and the way we think about it is just stakeholder alignment. It was actually five folks. It was um, the founders, the existing NEA LPs, my new LPs, the NEA partnership, the firm that I was spinning off from, and then the new firm, right? It had to make sense. But there was a couple of critical steps we we took in the beginning. To, to And these were kind of binary. If it didn't work, if we didn't pass these gates, it was dead in the water. The first gate was, you know, we actually went to our LPAC and said, does this make sense? Not that we needed their approval, but we wanted their blessing. But they actually reacted. We thought this is a great idea. We don't know the pricing. We have to figure that out. But you know, it's actually great that a venture firm is actually taking portfolio, active portfolio management in your own hands. You know, they know of the buyout firms would do it, PE firms would do it. But you know, they own their assets. So it's easier easier for them to say, we own this company in X number of years, we're going to sell it. Just easier to venture with minority investors. It's, it's much more difficult. So they were really um, positive and favorable. And the other major constituent was the founders, was the CEOs. And, and you know, from like NEA, long history founded uh, 50 odd years ago, Dick Cramlick, when he founded the firm, you know, it was really the entrepreneur friendly firm. They're going to an entrepreneur saying, we're selling you. Right. And at first blush, that could seem like, well, that doesn't seem like the most entrepreneur friendly. But and that was some of the first reactions. I went to some of my CEOs I was closest with that was going to be part of this to get the real feedback. And they, and the first thing is always, okay, what did I do wrong, right? Why are you doing this? And then you actually literally go through a discussion of, you know what, it's an older fund, maybe not getting the resources, resources as defined by people and capital, right? Because it's an older fund and maybe the person isn't there and, and, and capital in terms of follow on. That's door number one. Door number two, it's a spin out with someone that's a known quantity that's been at any for a long time, but you reset the clock, you get follow on dollars. And you know this whole operational value add, which, a fun, which is a fundamental tenet of who we are, was going to get infused here. And then they all got, uh, they got it. And towards the end, there was actually more companies that wanted to jump in. But that was a very clear line in the sand. And we went in, no, uh, with the thinking that if they universally rejected it, then there's no chance this would have happened. 
And so, but that was the first of its kind. Now I think it's just gotten a lot easier because people get it. And even when you go through the discussions, a lot of the CEOs would even say, you know what, you're right. You guys have been, you know, we've been in your fund, uh, in the fund for eight, nine years. I totally get it. And frankly, having someone new that has follow-on capital, because we're going to need a few more years to really see this to, to its logical outcome. And so those two were the, were the most important. And then, you know, with that, we had the conviction that, that companies to really go and make sure that the other constituents felt great about it as well. And, and I imagine a lot of, you know, in terms of talking to the founders, I mean, there's this seasoning of the idea because it is unorthodox within venture to not only do a GP-led secondary, but to do this modified structure in rolling those assets into a brand new firm. But I would imagine that part of that seasoning of the idea is ensuring that there's a proper level of support and in fact, maybe an enhanced level of support that they're going to get. And that comes with not only you being part of it, but building a team. How did you think about building the team during that time? The difference with this fund is when you close a fund, you have a, you have a moment to catch your breath and you start looking for deals and building a team. Well, this one, we closed and the next day we had 31 companies. And oh, by the way, 31 companies and most of them I visited and said, you know, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get support, et cetera. This is in the summer. We added to the team, and really, literally, the two first folks I hired were operators. They're former operators in uh, NEA companies. I'd known them for a decade. Tim Connor, who is a, an ex banker, but was an investor for a decade and also was a CFO for four years. So, brought a lot of finance and operational help. And then uh, the second person, David Yu, who 20 plus year in product, consumer and fintech. So, a really nice compliment on sector and function. And so those are the first two hires, knowing that day one, we couldn't catch our breath to look for new deals. Day one, it's really making sure that the portfolio, we onboard this new team to the portfolio, right? And then we built, um, we, we hired principals and associates because we did have capacity for new deals in that fund. But that was a number one thing because it would be not great for me or the firm if you spun off and then you don't give any support, right? So, and then that really... F- uh, was a foundational tenet of who we are, this operational value add, operational excellence that started really day one. And then we've just built on it over the last three and a half years. How did you manage, you just from a process standpoint, I'm really curious because there were so many things that could have come either from a legal standpoint, a structural standpoint, the LPs saying this doesn't work for us, that you had to get to a point of conviction that there was viability in the idea and that you were going to close. At the same time, you're also looking to sell these founders that there's going to be a team around. And I suspect that it's hard to recruit a team if they're not convinced or at least there's clear line of sight in terms of viability of a, of a close. How did you manage that process from a timing standpoint? Uh, delicately is <laughs> the easiest way to think about it. I mean, you're right. There were several months where I was building a team and you know we were building a really good group of LPs that we thought, you know, this is happening, but it's one of those things where I had to be honest, like, you know, we're doing this, we have conviction. It's not done yet. And it helps when you've known the first two folks joining first two partners for over a decade, you just had that trust that was super helpful. And then, you know, what I didn't appreciate for a couple of months leading up to it, there was a period of time when I was negotiating with four or five different law firms no offense to my lawyer friends, but that was, you know, it was, it was the companies, it was NEA, it was, you know, fund council, all of these. And that also, you know, we have lessons learned for anyone who wants to do that and how, how to do it better, but we, we, we managed through it. But for sure, there were moments where, okay, 
you're trying to get all the horses, you know, to, to kind of march in, in, in parallel. And, um, it took some doing, I had some amazing support from any, you know, like the, the general counsel, CFO, they were just amazing to really, it, it was truly a spinoff, the spirit of a spinoff, like, you know, you're, you're leaving, but we're going to make sure that you're, you're well covered until you launch. And so that, that was really uh, powerful and helpful as well. Let's talk a little bit about the the LP side of things, given the backdrop, because you look at the existing NEALPs who are looking to optimize on the price paid for those assets, and then you have your new LPs who are looking for you to optimize for the price you pay on those assets for them. How do you navigate that? Because you're you're in the middle. How does price setting work? How do you then look at it from the founder perspective if there's a discount that's being paid and this is what this is all was an education to me you know i certainly was conflicted so i had to stay out of it which that was the simplest and we just need to make sure that i was free and clear so it's really the lead lps and this is common knowledge of goldman and hamilton lane were the really ones driving that um negotiating with with nea but the guidance i gave both sides look these are quality companies this isn't you know this isn't your run-of-the-mill strip sale where you can command, you know, depending on the vintage fund, it could be a higher discount. Like these are highly curated, high quality companies. And I think they appreciated that. So they got to a, a, a point in time where, uh, or, or a place where both were well satisfied. It's, it's, it's one of those negotiations, you know, the, you know, when a negotiations um, goes well when either side is not fully satisfied. <laughs> So that's probably the mark of a, of a pretty good negotiation. So, and so that was really fundamental. And most of the LPs were LPs I knew. There were NEA LPs. There were different funds and different vintages and different teams. But there was this, um, I think, familiarity among us all. So they knew me. I've you know, been there 15 years, had relationships. I knew them as well. So I wanted to curate the LPs as well because I think that's, that's really important when you, because I, I wanted to build this not just one fund. If it was one fund, I was never done it. It's really well beyond that. So that means high curation of the companies, the investments, the team, the LPs, kind of all all of the stakeholders in your ecosystem. And over the four years that you've done this, and it's hard to believe that it's been already four years since the uh, the launch of Fund uh, Fund One. You have evolved where Fund One was largely the the secondary buy. There's a few directs or primaries in there now. You run both primary and secondary strategies, and I want to focus and really distill down on both. On the growth side first, we touched a little bit on growth before, and you mentioned you were over two in predictions you know, in the past with down rounds. And you know, right now, a lot of companies are simply not testing the capital markets because they don't need to, and the bid-ask spread is just going to be too wide anyway. And I think we haven't gotten to the point where there's full capitulation on what prices you know, are going to be given toward you know, any growth stage company. Because as a founder, you're looking at it and saying, last year I got valuation of X. I've actually grown my business 75%. Why am I getting a valuation that, that is effectively flatter down? What do you think is going to happen over the course of the next six to 12 months? And do you anticipate more structure coming in, whether it be liquidation preferences, ratchets, how should we be thinking about the growth markets over the next maybe 12 to 18 months, assuming that we don't see the markets reverse back to you know the pre-pandemic level? You're right. We haven't seen that capitulation except for one subset of the market. And I think it's companies that have less than 12 months of cash. 
especially six to nine months. That you're seeing, I am seeing a lot more capitulation happen more quickly. Saying they're just realizing, you know what? Let's even forget about that last one. We just have to get this. It's typically quality business, right? A lot of times they just, maybe the valuation was not, was certainly not reflective of the time. So let's just do what's right for the company and just get something done. And then the more cash you have, the more time you have to see how things play out. I think your question on structure, to me, it's really a function of who are the investors in the next 6, 12, 18 months. I think if it's the PE firms, the crossovers, the hedge funds coming back into the market, and they have, um, compared to their torrid pace of the last couple of years, they've left the market. Not completely, but certainly downshifted their speed uh, of deal making. Just to be clear, those are the Tigers, the D1s, folks that were doing a lot of late stage, now maybe doing more publics or early stage. Exactly. And, and if, if they're coming back in the market and maybe spotting value, and it's some of these PE firms that are doing more venture, I think they have a more structure mindset. If it is the current VC ecosystem funding our companies, um, I don't know if I would predict a lot of structure just because our headspace just isn't a structure headspace. It's more, let's finance the business. The valuation makes sense. It's that we're all on the same side of the table. Once you start having structure, you know, you don't want to have a lookup table to see who does <laughs> how well in an exit. Um, and I don't know this for certain, but I, but I my um, instinct is a lot of the structure that happened in the last 20 years after these downturns, I just don't know if people made money on the structure. So I think it's going to be really a function of who's going to be investing. And I don't see a lot of the, the late stage market. There's a couple of things, you know, it's slowed down considerably. It could be that, as you mentioned, company driven where they're just not raising. It could be investor driven where they're either vacated the market or taking stock of their own portfolios, probably a little bit of both, right? Um, at least in our portfolio, it, it, as, as is a lot of portfolios, we're looking at portfolio health. This happened in March, April of 2020 as well, right? The first thing that happens in these downturns, because largely unprofitable companies, the ones we fund, is the health, right? Uh, how much cash you have and what, and how you stretch that out. And, and the ideal scenario, it's two to three years, depending on where you are on that conservative end of the spectrum. And then the ones, certainly every firm and every portfolio has some companies that, okay, we didn't raise in that window, uh, and now we have to figure out how to raise. And they're just—that's what I think a lot of partnership discussions are probably partnership discussions and board discussions um, are are thinking through right now. It strikes me that you know when you think about some of the the PE shops, the traditional hedge funds that are looking to do more structured deals, it's with this mindset of value investing based on certain companies that ultimately actually might be distressed without, you know, the same growth characteristics of some of the funds or some of the deals that you're doing. And venture historically has been that. In fact, you and I talked about 08, 09. We actually didn't see as many down rounds as people predicted. And many of those companies were actually spoon fed to get to a, a level where it made sense for them to go then back to the capital markets, be it the private or public markets. Let's maybe turn to the secondary market, which I get so many questions from you know limited partners and GPs about there's likely going to be a rush of people looking to generate some level of liquidity. The institutional investors right now are facing the specter, and if they haven't already, 
the denominator effect. Liquidity, I think, is going to come at a higher premium over the next 18 to 24 months than we've seen in a long time. Where is the secondary market right now? And are you seeing deal activity, I, I guess, really pick up? Or are we still at that standstill, paralyzed uh, state of affairs? I think we're still a little paralyzed, but the, but but it's loosening. Um, so on the secondary side, certainly, you know, the LP denominator effect, they're starting to really think about unloading LP stakes, right? And if you look at our LPs, many of whom do this, they're overwhelmed with deal flow. And the discounts, some of them are saying if it's not 30, 40%, we're not even looking at it. Like, so it's pretty severe. And then where we spend our time is, um, you know, on the individual company side, we can do primary or secondary, and then these portfolio acquisitions like we did with NEA, right? Um, and I think where the discussion really is, is, you know, these the venture market in general accelerated their fundraising pace and enlarged their fundraising pace as well. Bigger and bigger funds, faster and faster, leading to this massive portfolio. The TVPI continued to climb. And actually, the last few years, up until recently, the DPI, the, the distributions actually, I don't know if it uh, it didn't uh, move lockstep, but it was quality distributions, right? A lot of firms did, did really well. And I think the realization is that we're going to get into this, I don't know if it's a DPI desert or uh, just a real limited amount of distributions for the foreseeable future. That foreseeable future could be for sure this year, maybe even a good chunk of next year. We just don't know, right? On the flip side, there's still, I don't know if that fundraising pace, I don't see the venture market raise subsequent funds that are smaller. They may stretch it out a little bit more, but you still see these TVPI and DPI uh, curves diverge. When they diverge, that's when you have pressure on the LPs that they're overextended and they're not getting distributions back. So I do think this what we were doing on the portfolio side, which is we have a whole set of funds, there's more and more conversations. And for us, we try to make it a win-win. We're not trying to go in and say, okay, this market, we're going to do X. Because a lot of these are relationship-driven, but it needs to make sense for us. It needs to make sense for them as well. I think you're going to see that more and more. And our hope is in a few years, because you have to measure these things not over a few quarters, but years, obviously, as you and I know. But it just becomes yet another tool for liquidity for venture firms. You can you have, you have companies that could go public. They could have a strategic M&A. They could have a financial sponsor M&A. That's also taken shape a lot in the last decade. Some companies, uh, I think some firms thought SPAC could be something, and that's obviously retreated pretty significantly. And then this is more of a wholesale, not a company, but maybe a portfolio, right? So in five years, what would be great and healthy for the industry is this becomes yet another toolkit. And then you have this, the flywheel, not just of great investments, great markups, but also just a steady stream of distributions. Um, so, so the LPs feel like, okay, you're being responsible with our capital, um, that you're giving it back. You're, you may be raising more. I get that. And we have to figure out what that limit is, but at least you're giving stuff back to us. And I think that is the end state that we think could happen. And it's starting to show signs that it may. I like the framework of liquidity as a management tool of portfolios and both on the LP side, as well as on the, uh, the GP side, at least historically in venture. There's also been this stigma of selling early. You know, if you're a GP and you sell something early, are you not as supportive? And what are the the following reputational effects of not staying with those companies? And and some companies, I mean, some some firms have done a great job of taking money off the table, and they've done really well. USV, for example, Benchmark, some of the best firms in the world. 
on the LP side as well, there's a little bit of stigma if you're in a top tier fund and if you need to sell off your position, is it going to impact your ability to continue to get your position in the in the future funds and how are you going to be viewed in the market? Are you seeing some of that overall behavior or an acceptance be more than what we saw in the past? And, and how, did, how do you think that really transpires of the next three, four, five years? Where do you see that this part of the market you know, going forward? I, I do see some of that stigma. It's still a stigma, right? But I see some of that loosening. I think for venture firms, you have to make a strategic decision. Okay, these, the top 10, 20% of our portfolio, you know, in the history, if you look back at venture 30, 40, 50 years, reputations of firms were made on one or two investments that lasted for decades hence. So it's totally makes sense for each firm to covet that and protect those. And then the bottom performers, I think, just getting them off your plate, because forget the capital, it's the time sink that is really crushing, right? And then you have this middle regions where there's still upside. You know, I think if you start selling three, four, five years into your relationship with a company, I think that's one thing that, you know, if I was a CEO, I'd say, okay, we can't really have trade a trading mentality with our board members and our investors, right? But if it's six, seven, eight years, and there's, you know, the person that led the deal isn't there anymore, and you've been a good uh, partner, right? Um I actually think that's the mentality. And the other thing is, you know, fundamentally, we're stewards of other people's capital, right? We have a fiduciary to them to, to make a return. So you could also have the situation where the the brightest, shiniest objects in our, our portfolio we're going to covet. Those are the ones that are the, the fund makers, the reputation makers, the brand makers, you know, and the bottom performers, let's just get them out. It's a disservice even to the entrepreneurs in those companies. You want to, you know, do something so the entrepreneurs can move on and do something else, right? Now, the middle region, you know, that's built for growth, built for value. That takes a long time. But there may be a point in time where, you know what, there's some of these companies where we may not be the right owners or investors, right, for the next five years, whatever. So I think that, and that is a that that is a strategic discussion. That's not a company by company. So where that needs to happen is the partners need to get together, right? And the, the silos need to get collapsed and say, okay, as a firm, how are we going to man- manage our portfolios and funds? So I do think that's going to happen. These things, you know, in one, two, three years, it may not be materially different. could be just because of this liquidity crunch. But I, we think of kind of five to 10 year horizons, even in four years, since we have done this, we've done several more portfolios, you know, a few other firms have done similar things, but not a lot. The stigma is less for sure. Oftentimes we forget how immature the the venture asset category is. And it wasn't really, you know, it's a 50 year old class, you know, generally speaking with most of the activity coming really in the uh, 80s, 90s. And of course, over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, I, I do think some of those things change as mainstream economic models and ways of managing money start to become more commonplace. I do think it's going to take some time. And, you know, to your point, it may not be the next two years. But it's hard to imagine a scenario where five to 10 years from now, liquidity is not one of those main features within the, the, the venture market. I, w- I want to end with maybe a, a, a final question. At the risk of having you go 0 th- for 3 in terms of prognostications, if you look at the venture market today, it's so segmented versus where it was 15 or 20 years ago. You fit within a very unique niche. Beyond what you're doing, do you think that there are certain archetypes of firms that are well positioned for where the market is 
and where the market might go really on a not just the next couple of years for really the long term yeah we, we think a lot about that because we're even though we're a young firm we're trying to put in place um structures and processes and however you want to think about it to be a long-lasting firm like my predecessor firm and others i think the number one thing for me is just really how firms are managing generational transition you have this you have the great resignation that's happening it's happening in ventures well you know folks that have either done really well and said you know i'm done i want to do uh something else or they may say you know what the next x number of years is going to be really hard it's time and that generation transition, just like venture, anything in venture is long term, that generation transition is years and years and years, right, in the making. And I think the firms that I get most impressed with are the ones that just, it's almost in their DNA. They just, you know, have a point of view that after a certain point, it's time to, to hand it over. But it's not just saying that, it's putting in, putting themselves in place to even be able to do that, meaning they hire younger folks, develop them. Um, we spend a lot of time doing that here, such that when it's time, you can actually not just say one hand over, but you've, you've actually built the system in place to be able to do that. I think that is probably going to be, I know it's not necessarily economic focused or deal focused, but I think it's just more fundamental because there's so many firms that, and you've seen, you know, in the history of the last 20, 30 years, the, the ups and downs of a lot of these venture firms, but that, that to me is kind of one of the biggest things that I think will shape the next five years. And a lot of it is just my generation. A lot of those folks are moving on or no longer there. So I'm, I'm seeing it kind of real time with my peers. It's really hard to do too. And we've seen so many great firms actually not be able to do it successfully and, and seen massive atrophy of talent who have decided to st start their own shops, you know, for a variety of reasons. And I think it's one that needs to be codified into the culture. As you said, the DNA itself, I, I think it is is one of the the key markers of a, a long term viable firm, and so those are great thoughts. And really enjoyed this conversation, given how topical it is today. And, and Ravi, we've always been fans of what you built, and certainly are excited about your future. So thanks again for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, Samir. Loved and enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ravi. To learn more about him or NewView Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.